Every generation gets worse. Spend some time in the book of Judges and see how generations get worse as they go until they get to the point when Christ comes and then Israel's dispersed all over the world for 2,000 years. I mean, think about that. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, you have given us many, many precious promises. And if we pray anything according to your will, we know that you hear us. And if you hear us, then we know that we have the petitions that we ask of you. This is your word. Lord, I I know that you hear me because you have chosen me and placed me in, in the heart, within the heart of your own son. You, you gave me to him according to his prayer in John 17. And you are the sovereign of the universe. It all began with you. Everything that's taken place without your presence, without your life-giving power, without all that you do to keep everything working, holding all things together, how, with the audacity that we have as sinful people to think that we can exist apart from you and that you have set us apart to be autonomous within ourselves. I mean, the thought is just not only is not biblical, not only does it deviate from what you have said in your word, but it's, it's obnoxious in its arrogance. I confess, Lord, that we all begin there and, uh, and it's a, a war that we fight with the devil and with our own souls and in our minds and in our hearts to understand that you are God and there is no other. You are the one who has set the stars in the heavens. You keep this, the earth revolving around the sun. You've put the, our solar system in its place. You are an incredible God. You are beyond our ability to comprehend. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you be with me in the course of this message and that I would be led by the Holy Spirit in the things that are said. May no word come out of my mouth that is displeasing to you. Put into me, rather, the things that you are pleased to hear. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are looking at a message today from your word that has to do, that deals with this subject of the condition of the church today. I mean, and to be honest, we, uh, we go through different periods of time, ups and downs, uh, just like in the world and life and cultures. Nations come and nations go, and, and we, we look at what goes on in the world, and we just want to make sense out of it. You know, where are we at right now, we can ask. 
And everyone has their a perspective, and then there's God's perspective. We can read the Word of God, and we can understand what He says about what's going on today. You know, uh, saying that we're in the, the Christmas spirit, you know, people, many people harp on the idea of Santa Claus. I'm not here to knock the Santa Claus concept. I'm just bringing, making a point that people are waiting you know, they wait for a Christmas Eve. I remember when I was a kid, I mean, it was an exciting thing to think about the fact that God, uh, that, that Santa was coming and he was going to bring toys and, you know, it's exciting. And, and then New Year's and, you know, big hoopla that, you know, thinking like things are going to be different and better and they never really are. Um, but, you know, we, we celebrate. Um, so the question now is, I've raised the awareness here, you know, what, what, what is the future hold? For the Christian, the Christian believes in prophecy and there are prophetic announcements about Jesus' return. Now this message, I'm just bringing this in for a moment about Jesus' return, but the message is really about where we are as a church, as individuals within our present churches are we prepared for Jesus to come back? And I want to look at this from a few different sides. I want to start this off by looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this has to do with our Lord's return. It's been on my mind quite a bit, doing some meditating and praying and thinking over these things. And when he starts off the, the chapter and 2 of this letter... He says, you know, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and our gathering together to him. He's talking about what people refer to as a rapture, or which really means a group of people being gathered up to him. This is important, and it was important to them, and they were kind of a little beside themselves because their understanding was they weren't very old as a church. And their understanding was on the, on the weak side, as there are with many today in churches. And they were confused, and they were worried, and they heard about the coming of the Lord, and all throughout the Old Testament, that there was this awareness of judgment to come. And it certainly didn't change in the New Testament. God will judge the world by Jesus Christ, we are told, one day. So, you know, where are we today? Everybody secure? Everybody ready? Seems like a lot of people seem ready whenever I go to church, and you know, they're looking forward to it. Uh, I don't want to, you know, throw a wrench in a, in the works here, but I, I do want us to think hard hard about, you know, w w are we prepared? And he says about this gathering together that his concern is that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message, or a letter, as it, as if from us. And he's talking about the apostles, the leaders in the early church. You know, there's there was deceitful people, and they were they were lying and saying they were apostles, and they were not. And so he says to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, I don't know what is in their thinking, or what would be in the mind of a person. If the, the Lord had come and you're still there, I mean, I'm a little, I would be confused to hear that because of my perspective of what it is, because when the Lord comes back, 
And depending on what point he comes back, and there's, you know, always different interpretations, what that will mean. Because, you know, the Bible clearly teaches from the old and many prophecies and, and in the book of Revelation and many portions of the New Testament that there is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for a millennial reign. Now, there's the tribulation period that takes seven years, uh, the end of Daniel's 490 years. That's a prophecy in Daniel, which then gets completed through... Um, 483 years that take place and then the, the clock stops uh, according to Jesus' entry into New Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And then there's seven years left on the clock. Now, if one sees those timetables and then takes the word of God to mean what it says, then that leaves seven years of tribulation, which appears to be exactly what John is writing about in the book of Revelation. I bring all this out to stay in 2 Thessalonians where there's this people are being disturbed about the thought that, oh my gosh, it's past. Doesn't really totally make sense. and There's several reasons. But he says, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come, here's one, unless the apostasy or the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now that falling away can be interpreted in, in various ways. But if you took, take the pieces of scripture and put them together, one of the things that Paul refers to in writing through the book of Romans, when he gets to 9, 10, and 11, and you know the, his writings are they're deep, thank God for that. You know, you can see salvation on the surface and you can see it in the depths. And 9, 10, and 11 deals with certainly, clearly, the nation of Israel. He finishes up with 8 with this fact that men are secure who are in Christ, who are authentic Christians, who have repented of their sins. They have turned from their sins by the power of God. And in that is the security that only God can provide that God is working in, the, in their lives. And when God works in a life, he doesn't let it go, and he keeps his promise to the end, and he who has created a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so this promise and this preparation and this working of God have bring people to this place of security. And even though judgment judgments are coming, he, he didn't want these people to be shaken from their steadfastness. And he didn't want them to be deceived by false apostles. And he wanted them to understand that before those things happen, the man of lawlessness must be revealed after the great apostasy. So what's the great apostasy? Going back to Romans 9, 10, and 11, there's this possible, as he writes it, that the Jews will become yet again used by God as they once were. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul looking forward in time and understanding these things, he, he writes uh, to the church, and he writes in kind of a question type way about what's going to happen. And he says, 
For if their rejection, meaning Israel, that they've been rejected now, is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now think about this. Uh, the, the message has been in Jewish hands up until Christ. Christ comes, the message goes to the Jew first, as Christ wanted it to, and then it starts to go out throughout all the world, and the message just covered the whole Roman Empire and beyond. And for the last 2,000 years, it just continues to go and grow and, and reap converts. It's always remnants in all the nations. It's never like the whole world. The majority of the world, the, the, war, the way is broad that leads to destruction. That, that hasn't changed. But it's touched all different kinds of people, cultures, languages, nations for 2,000 years. But that says, okay, so if this, this rejection has led to the Gentile nations coming into a relationship with Christ, well, then what will the end be? What will be the restoration but life from the dead? Now, if the first piece of dough is holy, that's Israel, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were gathered in among them and became partaker of them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The law of Moses, the prophets, all the Old Testament, which is all they had in the time of the apostles and all of that awakening that took place in the outpouring of the Spirit and all of this transformation of people's lives and loving each other through it all, through the persecution, all of that began at the church period and it all through Israel still. And then they gradually rejected harder and harder until the church, beginning with Paul, said, okay, no more. This was in the plan of God. Now, here he's saying, wait, wait, do not be arrogant. Who's he saying that to? Well, he's not saying it to Israel. They've been cast off for 2,000 years. He has to be saying it to the church. He's telling the church, don't be arrogant. Remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. We, we had nothing to do with the root, the root whatsoever. Now, you will say then, he's kind of talking for the church, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Okay, so it's all about me. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of a sinful approach to thinking. And then he goes on and he says, well, uh, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Look, faith is not uh, a good work. Faith is not like something miraculously holy is in us, you know, intrinsically. You know, no, this is something that's actually imparted. It's by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's not of works. You don't pay for a gift. You don't earn a gift. It's given freely. That's the whole plan and of salvation. That's the message of the gospel. So he's saying, hold it, wait a minute, let's not get conceited about this. 
You're getting off track, if that's where your thinking is. And then he goes on and says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold, then, the kindness severity of, and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's goodness. To the Jews, it was severity. To us, it's kindness. If, oh, there's a if, if in there. If you continue in, in his kindness, otherwise, uh-oh, here it comes. You also will be cut off. Now, that's all questions, Marks. And I'm not going to go any more into the question that has now been raised. And the, 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 the question that's been raised is this. Where's the church? Are we conceited? Are we proud? Let, let's think about it for a second. What, what does conceit look like? I'll tell you real quick what conceit looks like. Um, how, how you can identify conceit. Now, I know that probably most of my listeners here are, you know, would turn around and say, I go to a good church. And I'm certainly sure that there are good things about your church. I, I, I probably don't even know most of your churches. But, but here's the thing. Uh, and Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He's not writing to a bad church. He's not writing to a bad church. As a matter of fact, when he opens up the letter in the first chapter, he says the good things that are there. I mean, in everything, you're enriched in, in him. That's a good statement. In all speech, in, in all knowledge, and even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in anything, gift, waiting, awaiting evil, eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It means he's peering, you know, just can't wait for this. All the way back 2,000 years, and here's the church, and it's good, and it's full, and it's rich, and, and, he, and he's telling them all that they've received, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good, 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 good. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Good, again, good. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, that's that's a first stop stop sign ahead. What? Why is he saying this? And he goes right on and he continues and says, um, after telling them to be of the same judgment, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. I mean, just back up for a second and think about this. You know, you're talking to somebody and they're kind of, they're not setting you up. They're telling the truth. They're telling you all the good things. They're not, you know, because they know what's coming. I've been told about you. There's divisions among you. There's quarrels. Verse 12, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus and Cephas, I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? I mean, Paul was not crucified for you, uh, was he? Uh, were you baptized in the name of Paul? A lot of sarcasm, a lot of harsh words. Why is he saying all this? Because when pride comes in, it's one-upmanship. It's who's better than who. You know, the competition that sports drives into people from their youth all the way, I'm the best, we're the best, we're the best. You know, you do the chanting, you know, and it's all, that's all about pride. I guarantee you, that throughout eternity, the saints will be in the presence of Almighty God, literally in the presence all the time of Almighty God, and no one will be saying, I'm the best. Not going to happen. So why does it happen now? Why do the Baptists fight against the Presbyterians and all of this? I'm not here 
in this message to talk about the divisions. I'm bringing in a, a simple question as to what can we expect when Jesus comes back. If he comes back and we're all of the same mind and we're all humble about it, I think that's a good day. I think if he comes back and we're all divided about it, um, that could be us cut off. The apostasy, the falling away, that's the church. I'm not saying I'm, in, I'm the judge like I know who this and what percentages and all. You know, there's people like losing their heads and their lives right now as I speak probably around the world. I know 70 villages got attacked and all the Christians in those villages in Mozambique, the people lost their, their heads, literally. I'm speaking primarily right now to the West and I'm speaking to the, the church in America and I'm speaking, you know, for you know, for those of us who hear this and for understand these things, I mean, our, life, our prayer life needs to be more than it is. We need to be praying for the people in prison. We need the people... Pers- being persecuted around the world right now, and we need to be praying for our, our not humble church in America that we would stake, take a step back. Don't think we're all in the greatest church that ever lived, or if we're sad about the church and want it even better, but still pretend that the church is, is what it should be, or the church is something that Christ will be actually you know, enjoyful when he returns. Let me bring up a couple of points. I want to get through this. In Matthew chapter 16, we have out of Jesus' earthly body, out of his human body, what he does is he speaks about the foundation of the church. Everybody's familiar with this, should be. Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself, Son of Man, a prophetic announcement from Old Testament prophets referring to the Messiah. And they said, they, Peter, they said here in Matthew, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Hmm. Okay, here's Simon Peter answers up for the rest. You are the Christ. The son of the living God. Now, he didn't totally understand, I don't think, what he was really saying there. But, you know, when, he, when Christ answers Philip later on, not too further beyond this, you know, Philip said, you know, if you show, show us the Father, it's enough. And what does Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, they weren't getting, and it's, it's hard for us to get it at all, really, but the reality that God is one. Three persons, one God. It makes perfect sense, we just, it's just incomprehensible. But in this, Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm God. And you know what that means? That means that the name Adonai belongs to him, and the name Adonai in the Old Testament means master in a master-slave relationship. I don't mean to offend anyone by the use that the Bible for the reason of pointing out that God is in a master-slave relationship with those he created. Why well, does that mean that we don't have freedom? Absolutely. We're set free to do what's right. And God gets to say what's right. He actually 
determines what's right. And because of who he is in his person, that he's holy and he's beyond anything we can comprehend as far as good, he gets the only one who gets to do it because he's the only one who can do it right. And we're the channel, meant to be the channel through whom he will work through all eternity in whatever he has planned for us. But the fact is, he's the source of everything. Everything good. So in Matthew 19, and, uh, and, and this is, you know, when once Peter says this, Jesus responds to him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bajona. Flesh and blood <clears throat> did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Savior, the Messiah that's meant to come, and the Son of the living God, meaning you're God, even though he didn't comprehend it at the moment. And, and, and so there's the foundation. On the confession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, and I relinquish my life as my own, and I put it into the hands that it belongs to by creation and now by redemption. By sacrifice on the cross to pay the price for my sins. My life belongs to him. He is Lord. I'm not going to go into the controversy between MacArthur and, and the proponents back in, from 68 and the, the writing of the book, to Jesus, The Gospel According to Jesus. And if you don't haven't read it, you need to work your way through it. There's not a better book because it it points to Jesus the way we should see Jesus. And that's especially Christians and how the world needs to hear the gospel of Jesus as Lord. So there's the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes and says to Jesus, So someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life into life, keep the commandments. First, Jesus sets the stage and says, Look, why are you asking me about what's good? There's only one that's good. I mean, why go any further? But Jesus knows where he's going to go. He sees his heart. He sees everything about the man. I mean, he created him. And here's the thing. Uh, the man just continues on. You know, he, he starts to, which commandments? What, what, what does that matter? Jesus just told you you're no good. Now, we live in a culture, and that's all I'm even going to say about that, but I'm bringing this up because we live in a culture that has determined you can only speak positively to people. Not the church hasn't determined this. God hasn't determined this, or the church shouldn't have determined this. Only God has the right to determine how we speak to people, and he's showed it in Jesus Christ. Now, this person went away sad. He laid him out, told him, oh, you, you think you're keeping the commandments? Fine. Sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. He knew that he was a greedy man. And then follow me. Follow me. I'm the Lord. I'm the master. You're the slave. You do what I tell you. And the man went away say, say, you know, sad. Why? Well, people don't go away sad today because all they hear is receive Jesus and you're good. Never mind repentance, never mind sin, never, never mind seeing Jesus Christ as Lord. No, forget about all that. That's not important. All you need to do is receive Jesus and you know grace and you're good. You're in. And everything there from there on is God just wants the best for you. 
Now, I know that there's people who will say, oh, no, we don't say that, but I, but as Lord being practiced. Now, wait, if like you're doing all of this right, if you got this whole lordship thing down, doubtful in a lot of churches, but, you know, if you should have that, even that down, we're not done yet. We want to know what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, and are we going to be ashamed at his coming, or are we going to be like... Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, and you're just wiping the sweat off because you don't want to see that look on Jesus' face when he looks disappointed because, like, you didn't preach the gospel right. You know, you was worldly. You were selfish. You didn't repent of sin. Go on repenting of sin because you didn't even really get it in the beginning. Don't throw it off. You got a book. You can read. Can you read? Uh, then you can figure this out. Can you read men in the past? Forget about 20th century. Just go back to the 18th, 17th centuries, 16th. Read those men and find out what happened at the Reformation and, and beyond. And no, no generations are perfect. But let me tell you, with the devil around, every generation gets worse. Spend some time in the book of Judges and see how generations get worse as they go until they get to the point when Christ comes and then Israel's dispersed all over the world for 2,000 years. I mean, think about that. But let's, let's go to Matthew 18. <clears throat> and in Matthew 18... We're going to see something really important. We've seen the foundation of the church. Now let's look at the first building block. The first building block is found in, in, in Matthew 18. So one chapter later, you know, he's, he's with them. He's, he's, he's who, who do men say that I am? Oh, thou the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great. This didn't come from you. This came from the Father, by the way. Another subject. This is about God speaking to men. When did God, I mean, when did he say that? He didn't say that from heaven. <clears throat> but here that, that foundation has been laid, and now let's go on and see how we build in the church. And in chapter 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so... If you don't get the humility that a child has, and you know he needs everything. From really small, you know, he can't even feed himself. And then he grows, and as he's growing, you know, it's less and less. But he's just needy, 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 needy until he becomes an adult. And with the proper discipline and training and nurturing by loving, godly Christian parents who obey the scriptures, you can come up with a pretty decent human being if he's converted. And if he comes to Christ, then for sure, God will be working in his life. But it all begins with humility. And verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, Daddy, Daddy, can you tell me this? Daddy, can you tell me that? Daddy, I need this. Daddy, I need that. That's the humility. I mean, can you see prayer working there? Can you see the needs? Can you see 120 people in the upper room as they're, they're dispersed? I mean, they're feeling the stress of persecution. Christ has died. Christ himself has been put on a cross. But wait, he's risen from the dead. But what's this mean for us? I mean, we know the way they treated him. We know the things he said to us. The need for prayer is great. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. And so he talks about stumbling blocks. 
After he gets through this whole section on stumbling blocks, <clears throat> how do how do we throw stumbling blocks? You ever thought about that? How in the church? Where do these stumbling blocks come from? Well, in an in an interesting portion that follows this, beginning in fifteen, we read this: If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Interesting. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, just think about this. What churches across the United States are, are, are practicing what I'm about to read through in this section? This may be cause to, like, you know, shut the radio off or, you know, shut off the, the computer because this is not easy. I'm not talking about a pastor running away with the secretary. I'm not talking about anything in leadership, primarily. In, in the church, leaders get puffed up and they fall, and they fall a lot more than we want to we talk about. And when they do, other leaders take them into account, and that's church discipline. So it's not that church discipline never happens. I have a friend of mine who tells me this all the time, and I love him for it. And so when people come and they disagree with leadership, and leadership puts them out, that's discipline too. And leadership usually doesn't have a whole lot of trouble doing that. I mean, I myself, you know, was deciding whether or not that I wanted to be part of a church at one point. And so I wanted elders to get together and I talked to the elders and say, you know, how are we doing things around here? I want to know. And I couldn't make it happen. So I'm at dinner with one of the elders one night and I said, why isn't this happening? What's going on? You know, so let me see if I get this straight. You're asking me to come into the church, which they were, and I want to, you want me to be a part of the church, and you want me to do what I did that you know I did in another church where I disciple men all the time, and I do your work in the church, and, but I'm going to be submitting to your authority, so if I disagree with something, there's no recourse, right? I mean, are you going to listen to me? What's going on here? And he responds with, I even hate to say it, well, you know, you can always just leave. Yeah, I mean, you need time to just kind of, you know, think about and and take that in. You know, you can you can just leave. Somehow, you know, when I tell the truth from the Word of God, people have a tendency to think of me as being too hard. Well, I think telling the truth is not hard. I think hard preaching makes soft hearts. But I think things like that make people terribly hard. Now that's, that's, even easy preaching makes people hard. Forget about that, right? That's off the scale. That's just like taking the church in your own hands and being the leader. I mean, like leaving God out. <clears throat> but he goes on here in 18 and says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. Most people know this. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So when was the last time in church you saw a person put out? I'm not talking about a leader. I'm talking about members. See, members are not put out if they're okay, if they're not causing any trouble. They can be sinning, you know, but as long as they're not causing trouble for leadership, they, they won't be put out because we don't want them to leave because we like numbers in the church and and we like, dare I say it, finances, and we, we just like things to keep moving 
Because, see, the whole point is that we bring souls to Christ. Is that the whole point? I wouldn't bring it into question, but I'm going to bring it into question if this isn't being practiced. Because this is how purity is maintained in the church, and you don't make people stumble. I had someone just this week come to me. And he's, he's talking to me about something he saw another person doing. And the other person, you know, professes Christ and goes to Bible studies and goes to church. And they're doing this. And I'm not even going to mention what it was. You know, but if they're doing this, why are they doing this? Because if the world looks at them or people in the church look at them, it's very easy to say, I mean, that's not really living a godly life. That's not even avoiding being a stumbling block. You see, that's what a stumbling block is. And I have people talk to me all the time. You know, I'm a, uh, and, and they, I'm a Christian. And you know Christians, are, uh, you know, they kind of hedge. Well, you got an older grandmother that, yeah, she was a godly woman. But how about everybody else? Not so much. See, that's uh, not a good testimony. And this in 18, the first building block, right out of Jesus' earthly lips, setting the tone for the church. Just these two things. Everything else really comes out. Prophecies there are here. But concerning the church and behavior, all comes out after Pentecost. But not these two. And so if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, collector. And you know, people just, they just mutilate this. And they turn it into something where they're not put out of the church. Well, you know, you don't let them come to Bible studies or, you know, there's something, you know, but they still come to church. But that's not what this says. This says you treat them like a Gentile in the tax gatherer. That means he's put out of fellowship. That, can, that includes worship. That includes coming and giving tithes, prayer meetings, all of it. Why? Is this to hurt people? No. Should you jump at this? Should you be critical and judgmental and hurt people that way? Absolutely not. This is a slow process. Being careful, questioning, not accusing, asking what's going on. Like one man, <clears throat> and I can say it because I hear him say it, you know, where MacArthur you know, saw a person in the church and heard that he was over some woman's house and called to find out what was going on. And the man was actually, in the end, all really happy because he didn't really even want to be there and he thought it was wrong. And he went back to his family. You know, that kind of accountability. Where, where is it in the church? Where, where's the list being formed of, in big, big churches, people being put out because they're doing everything under the sun and they could care less? And they don't have to worry because nobody's going to hold them accountable because we don't practice this. So you have churches filled with believers and unbelievers, which God hates. And that brings us to what we're talking about today. Is Jesus Christ Lord? Lord, Are we repenting of sin from square one and throughout our lives? And in the course of that, when a brother comes to me and say, you know, how are you living your life? I'm not sure that I'm seeing Tell me what's going on. I want to know about you because I love you. And then we get all indignant and say, hey, you don't have any right to be talking to me. Well, actually, I do. Matthew 18 gives everyone the right. This isn't leaders. This is, if you see a brother, sin and show him and <clears throat> show him his fault in private. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. He's talking to the church. 
He's talking 2,000 years later to everybody today. This isn't to Timothy. This isn't a leadership book. This is the, the disciples at the time. And believe me, these weren't apostles yet. These are people who are still going to argue who's greatest in the kingdom of God at the Lord's Supper. They're going to come become apostles. But quite frankly, every single person who has benefited from the sufferings of Christ on the cross, every person who has been given a Bible they can read and they can know from Genesis to Revelation the will of God, the desire of God, the plan of God, the love of God, the wrath of God. Every person is responsible to live a godly life, and that includes allowing people to look into our life for accountability and looking into other people's lives for accountability. And I'm going to say this, that there are far less restrictions on who can and can't live into our lives than we're willing to admit. Did you hear what I said? I said that and I mean it. I'm going to tell you why. I'm 69 years old and in the course of my life, not just through reading but personal experience, I have found that the the people God often sends is meant to send leadership to do their job. But because leadership oftentimes fails to do their job, he sends people into our lives, the least likely people, maybe people not in our church even, maybe people who are, are, are really immature in the faith. I've had him send somebody who is lost, lost, I tell you, to talk to me and say, I don't hear God in the things you're saying. I mean, Balaam, he was a bad guy. He wasn't a good guy. But everything he said, he said, I got to say what God told me to say. He was true to what he was going to say, except for when it came to living it out. Then he corrupted Israel and got them committing adultery. But a donkey talked to that guy. Jesus sent a donkey. You know, a dumb, stubborn mule of an animal to talk to the wayward prophet. And if you think that God won't do that in your life, if you get that far, if what the, what's happening in the culture of the church today that is so far from these principles of lordship and accountability that he won't have to send someone into your life to speak to you that way. See, this isn't all on the individual's. Jesus said, I will build my church. And you know what? That means he's got the authority and we do not. Forget about this whole matter of interpretation and we choose what we will do and what we won't and we just do what we want to do and we just say everybody has the right to do it. Who are people kidding? Jesus is Lord and we just have the right to interpret as we go? And people can say, silly, I wish it was just silly, but wrong things, like it's okay to differ. When Paul writes again and again and all of the writers in the New Testament about being one mind, that doesn't mean agree to disagree. You can be arrogant, conceited, all you want, it's okay. It's not okay. None of this is okay. Why? 
because Jesus went to the cross. That's all that we need to think about when thinking about this subject. We know that we're either going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, according to 1 Corinthians 3, or our works are going to go up in smoke. We're either going to be building the church with gold, silver, precious stones. And this is everybody, not just leaders. We're either going to be building the church that way, go into all the world and make disciples. As you go into all the world, make disciples is not just to apostles. It's not just to men gifted to help build up the church, but the church is to do the work. Forget about the The ground is level at the cross. Jesus died for us all, and we're all going to be held accountable. Don't think you're getting off easy because you're not a Charles Spurgeon. It's not going to work that way. Don't trust me or read your Bible. Just because there are books for people to be led, those people who are meant to lead in the church are because they're being faithful. There's all kinds of reasons, and I can go into that, why people are are unfaithful But it's not all on the members. Actually, leadership carries two-thirds of the responibility. Do not be called doctor. Call no man father. Do not be called professor. Jesus said that in Greek. And so two-thirds lays on leadership to make sure that the church is humble and it starts by leading the life of a humble man. Don't get built up with pride and the pride of knowledge. I'm just, that's just one thing. So, but, but you still have one-third responsibility on the individual who's fallen back because he's not being taught as, with the depth that he needs to grow and become a, a disciple maker, which is all our responsibility. Well, I don't have the gift. Well, you, you're, you're going to be held to the percentage of the gift that you're given. Romans chapter 12, do some study on it. Get into the Greek and, you know, you find out that God not only gives gifts, but he gives them in percentages. Like there's this big gift that you put it all together for a church and everybody's got a piece of that and you're responsible for that piece. And if you think you can't be a disciple because you're not a Spurgeon, you're not thinking correctly. Trust me. Trust the word of God. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are looking at something as important as what happens when you come back. Because it's not going to be all fun and games when you get back, at least for the judgment. It'll be a wedding. It'll be a marriage. And we'll be the, the bride. And you're the groom. And you're the sacrifice. And you're the Lord and the Master and God Almighty and Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, and everything we need is found in you, and there's nothing, nothing that we'll ever need in eternity. And it's all possible through the cross, and that's what we're looking at today, because today is the day when we are to be working for the gospel. And and so I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you bring people into a right relationship with you, that they can see and they can know and they can understand the necessity of questioning ourselves and our church and to not compromise on godliness. 
never to compromise on godliness. Lord, I just, I pray you open all of our hearts. We need revival in America. We need to turn from thinking of worship as if it were song to think of worship as if it were entertainment. I mean, we are so far from what we need to be. Worship is is being obedient as a father, as a mother, as a parent, as a child. It's obedience in every area of life, at work, and how much we give of our lives to the church and to the lost. Yeah, we we give money where there's wealth in America. That's not all you're asking. You're asking time. You're asking your of your gifts back. You give them to people not to be buried in the ground. And that that one that buried in the ground, he didn't have a good he didn't have a good reaction from the one that gave it. Lord, I pray for the church that we not be burying our gifts in the ground, but we be using them for your honor and glory so that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, do these things and much, much, much more. Not here only in America, but around the world. I, I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.